Support for IPR comes from Corridor Vein Center and Corridor Aesthetics, treatment for varicose veins and spider veins, also providing facial rejuvenation services and treatment for moderate to severe acne. More at Corridor Vein and CorridorAesthetics.com. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. Later this hour, actor and KMRY radio DJ Ricky Bartlett is back on the air. He's in front of cameras and doing a whole lot more after recovering from his second leg amputation. I will talk with him. But first, Abinis and Kofa Imhotep has known for some time that she would write a book, but she wasn't what, sure what form that book would take. Now she has published her first children's book, a joyful, inspiring picture book called Amari's Big Tree and the Mighty Jimbe. Imhotep is also executive director of Sankofa Literary and Empo- or Literacy and Empowerment Group and Sankofa Literary Academy. She's also a student at Drake University and a leader in many ways in Des Moines. Abina, hello. We seem to be having trouble with our connection to Des Moines. So what we're going to do is actually flip-flop our topics today. I know that Abina is in the studio and ready to chat, but we're going to work on our technical issues and instead... I'm going to introduce Ricky Bartlett. Ricky Bartlett plays music and spins yarns on KMRY in Cedar Rapids on weekday mornings, and he continues to pursue an acting career, increasing his credits on IMDb. This is all incredibly remarkable because he nearly died in 2014 as the result of a rare flesh-eating disease that ended up costing him his left leg. Eight years later, he also had to have his right leg amputated. Now he's back at work and doing his best to live life to its fullest. And he's in the studio. Hello, Ricky. Oh, good morning. Good morning. How you doing? I am doing great. Thank you so much for being here. And already, I know your listeners in Cedar Rapids are already aware of this, but uh, people can probably pick up on the fact that you're not originally from Iowa. No, ma'am. No, ma'am. <laughs> Columbus, Georgia, about 100 miles south of Atlanta, right on the Alabama border. All right. So, Ricky, I, I want to go back in time to talk about your near-death experience in 2014. So uh, this all started with a, a small injury, you think, in 2010 when you were in South Dakota? Well, what happened was I was part of Kirkwood's uh, GIS program, and we went to Wyoming and South Dakota. And while we were there, I was wearing some, like, hiking sandals, and I got a blister while we were doing a little hike thing. And then uh, we were in the Badlands, and my foot slipped and landed in some mud. And so cleaned it off, everything was fine. And then about three years later, I started noticing some kind of some sores. So 2013 was hitting with some sores on it. And uh, by October 2014, sores got so bad that I was bedridden. And then December 6th of 2014, my wife forced me to emergency room because I thought I could handle it on my own. And evidently Mm -hmm. I couldn't. And that's where um, they rolled me into the lobby I pass out. I wake up. My leg's gone. Wow. So you come back from that and um, you get this job on KMRY in Cedar Rapids. And that that was quite a a remarkable um, moment of serendipity. (laughs) (laughs) Here's the thing. While I was in rehab, uh, Jennifer noticed, my wife noticed that I was kind of in a slump. She's like, what's wrong, baby? And I was like... I don't think I could do my old job anymore. I was in, doing IT, and I've done broadcasting before, and mm-hmm. I just kind of left and, and all that. And I just didn't 
feel like I could lift the big computers up and do all this other stuff. I felt real down. She said, what's the one thing you did that made you happiest? And out of my mouth, radio. That was it. Okay. So next thing I know, in May of 2015, I walk into KMRY to see my friend Susan. And uh, I walk out with the morning show. Didn't even apply. Wow. So I don't know what it was. Like you said, serendipity, the graces of the fates. But there it is. So tell me uh, what the vibe is in the morning on on your morning show. Oh, lots of coffee. <laughs> <laughs> I get up at three fifteen every morning. Leave the house at four. Have to be there. Try to be there around four forty five, five o'clock. Get all my news and everything else done. But I like it hot and pumping, hot and pumping, because I like to wake up to excitement. I don't want to wake up to this, you know, Lawrence Welk mess. So you know, I try to. Pick the music, try to have the attitude up there and everything else. And, of course, with my southern accent, you know, half the people can't, can't understand me anyway. So <laughs> I don't know that that's true. <laughs> but <laughs> after after you survived this incredible experience in 2014 and lost your leg in the process, your wife sometimes described you as Mary Poppins on Skittles. Lord have mercy. So tell me, tell me how that experience changed your outlook on life. Well, number one, I didn't believe you brought that up. But yeah, she's like, oh, he's too happy. He's too happy. It's like, you know, you got Skittles just coming out of every orifice and everything else. Because I was so grateful to breathe. Because when I woke up from ICU, I didn't realize I wasn't breathing. They said, had I laid in that bed another 12 hours, I would have been dead. Mm. And I didn't realize all this. So, yes, I was phenomenal, just fantastic. Now, that lasted for quite a while. Now, when I lost my right leg, eh, I was a little bit more understanding about the situation. So tell me what led to this second amputation. About 2018, we found a little dark spot on my, my right big toe. And, of course, my stubbornness, because they were wanting to kind of take it then, I said, no. So I finally get it, get to the point where it's like, go ahead, go ahead and take thing. Um, we thought everything was good. It was going to come back. And then February of this year, they came, or January, I'm sorry, they came back and said, hey, it's returned with a vengeance. And I saw the signs coming. I did not want to go through this all over again. I didn't want to put Jennifer through this and my family all over again. So I made the conscious decision. Let's schedule it. Let's go chop, chop, get it off, and let's go. And that's exactly what happened. Wow. And and so, in fact, the doctors didn't even say that they felt like you needed to have your entire leg amputated below the knee. Um, but you felt like you wanted to just do that right away because you felt like it, it was a possible outcome anyway. Well, the, the biggest thing they were saying, hey, let's just cut half the foot off. And I was like, no, I don't want to walk around like no goat. So instead, I said, let's go all the way up, make things even because my OCD kind of kicked in. Let's make everything even. Plus, I know the bone up there is good and clean and safe. And so they don't have to worry about things. Mm-hmm. So uh, Friday, the 13th, May, that's when they did the surgery. And I watched, I think I watched Jason a couple of times, you know, just kind of get into that mood. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, obviously you make light uh, of this now, but what was that like facing this second amputation? I uh, would have rather went through the first amputation knowing that I just woke up and it was gone instead of scheduling the thing because my nerves 
were on the roof. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're right. I mean, I, I do put on a, a happy face and wear that mask. And I was scared because I'll be honest with you. I, like I told Jennifer, I, I really didn't feel like I was going to wake up. So, and I still get emotional about it because that feeling of your mortality being in question just really hits you. And I'm a six foot four big guy. Nothing gets me. But that right there, knowing that the possibility of I could have left my family, I could have left everything because of the decision I made to have it taken off scared me because I also found I had heart failure. And that's one of the things I was scared of is the anesthesia with the heart failure. So all these things just, just went on, went on, went on. And then Jennifer sat me down. She says, what do you want? Put it out there and you'll get it back. And I said, I want to open my eyes and survive this. And that's exactly what I did. What has the rehabilitation process been like to learn to walk on two prosthetic legs? Whew, you hit you hit that one right there too. Painful, emotional, um, very scary because it's it's relearning a whole new life all over again. And you have to put your full trust in two carbon fiber titanium legs. And I've had eight years with my left leg. So we we good friends. And then we introduced this right one. And it's like, okay, I really don't know you too well. I don't know your credit score and all this other mess. So we're going to have to just check and see how you do. Um, it's been it's been interesting. It's been better than I thought. Because when I, I like you see, I'm in shorts today. Mm-hmm. If I wear jeans, long pants, you'd never know I was an amputee. Uh, because I chose to make sure my walking gait was normal so no one ever questions that. And plus it was it was for me to make sure that I could do this. Now I just got cast for brand new legs because I'm walking out of these already. My leg is shrinking. Really? The way it's supposed to. Faster than we thought. So that it's a constant evolution, a constant change. <laughs> constant evolution, constant change. Yes, ma'am. With learning to walk again. What did you think your future would look like? I wasn't sure if I was going to be wheelchair bound or not. Um, I have a wheelchair at home, a walker, uh, canes, and I look at those as, yes, they're tools, but I avoided them like the plague. I don't, I didn't want to be in that chair. I tried to get out of that chair as quick as possible. We had a ramp built in and uh, I just, I, I look at that ramp as another tool but one I don't want to use so I take the steps I have my the way my house is I have seven steps going to a landing seven steps going to the main area and I I purposely take those steps every day and but as far as what did I think my life was going to be like I honestly knew it was going to be better and only because I lived through the first one and I knew the, the second one's going to be okay now whether or not I was going to have to be, you know, leaning and wobbling all over the place and waddling like some penguin, that's, that's different. But everything's good now. We're going to have to take a short break. We'll that's, be back in just a couple of minutes and we'll talk more about what you've been doing 
including acting in addition to being on the radio every day. And we'll also talk about future plans as well. With me is Ricky Bartlett. He is a radio DJ on KMRY in Cedar Rapids on weekday mornings. He also continues to pursue his acting career, increasing his credits on IMDb. And he also this year had his second leg amputated. So he is working on living life to the fullest with a lot of challenges. We'll talk more in a moment. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News. Support for IPR comes from Corridor Vein Center and Corridor Aesthetics, treatment for varicose veins and spider veins, also providing facial rejuvenation services and treatment for moderate to severe acne. More at Corridor Vein and CorridorAesthetics.com. Support for IPR comes from The Healing Room at Upstream Functional Medicine, offering medical spa services that support the body's natural ability to detoxify from environmental challenges. Learn more about The Healing Room at upstreamfm.com. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. Coming up in a few minutes, we will meet Abinis and Kofa Imhotep. She has just published her first children's book, and uh, she's also been a leader in many ways in Des Moines for many years. We'll talk in a few minutes. With me right now is Ricky Bartlett of KMRY in Cedar Rapids. You hear him on weekday mornings where he's playing music, spinning some yarns as well. He's also an actor, and this is all uh, incredible, not just just that he is on the air and working, but also that he is sitting here across from me today because he nearly died in 2014 as the result of a rare flesh-eating disease that ended up costing him his left leg. Then there was a recurrence, and this year he had to have his right leg amputated as well. And Ricky, before the break, we were talking about your rehabilitation period, learning to walk with your new prosthetic legs, and returning to work, going on the air on KMRY, but you also have been determined to return to acting. Was that in question in your mind, or was that something you were always certain that you would try to to continue to do? And the funny thing is, it's not that it was in question in my mind as much as as actually some others, because I have actually been told, uh, and recently I was told by a director that um, because of my disability, I I was not marketable. Mm. And that all that did is put a fire in me and say, okay, well, you know, that's your little rice of an opinion. I'm not worried about that. And uh, but I have had some some uh, auditions lately for like TV shows like The Equalizer and um, and some other things. And uh, but we'll see. But I've noticed that I, I and I strive to not be placed pigeonholed into a certain disabled character. The the character that I played in Chicago PD was a non-handicapped character. And in fact, when I was on set, they every, every, no one knew that I was an amputee until towards the end of filming when I needed to adjust my leg because it was uncomfortable after 11 takes of fast walking. <laughs> and and uh, that's when they knew. and But it didn't change their opinion. So it was great. I suspect that... that- for many years, the idea that you would 
really be an inspiration to other people living with disabilities was the furthest thing from your mind. But I am sure that so many people have connected with your story and what you've been able to do. Can you tell me about that relationship with people? You know what? That That's the most humbling thing you can ever go through is have someone else come to you and say, Ricky, I heard you on the air talking about this or talking about you know, your battle with this and then say, you, you helped me, you changed me or your positive outlook, um, helps me every morning. I had one gentleman tell me, and this, this breaks my heart every time I hear it, that he was in the garage contemplating suicide when he turned the radio on and heard me talking simply about, you know, joking around about my leg and, and doing some other things. And I had simply said that you are what you answer to. And when you look in that mirror, that is your best friend. You don't treat your best friend wrong. You That is the person who is there for you constantly. And he said that, that changed his mind. And can you imagine someone telling you that on the brink of ending their own life? Wow. That just because of the words you said. My wife is a scientist, and I look at her as someone who changes the world. And she tells me all the time, Ricky, you don't understand that you and others in your industry change the world too. You help people. But I was blind to see that because I'm not, I, I have so much humility. I don't think about that. You talked earlier about how living through that first amputation and your near death experience, it made you just so incredibly grateful to be alive. And your wife teased you about being, <laughs> looking at the world through rose colored glasses. Mary I'll, Poppins and right, Skittles. Right. right. Mm-hmm. But that seems, I mean, that seems like such a, an incredibly understandable reaction to nearly losing your life, to to see the world differently. How do you think going through this second amputation, how has that changed your outlook? You know, I and, and even Jennifer will admit, I, I don't have the Mary Poppins Skittle mentality like I had before because I understand that, you know, I, I, I'm alive. Th- things are phenomenal. and But it was also in my hands the reason why I'm alive, too, because I didn't let it progress and go as far as it could have to the point where I was going to die. But also during the first amputation, I did have a moment of suicidal thoughts because I thought just one action could end all this. I don't have to deal with it anymore. And I broke myself out of it. But going forward and saying, hey, you know what, this this is actually a positive thing, but let's not overdo it. <laughs> and uh, because I didn't have time to sit there and, and dwell on it too much. I had rehabilitation. I had to walk again. I had to make my life better again. And normal. That's the biggest thing. I had to make my life normal. That's why I bought the motorcycle. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me about the motorcycle. I bought that as a gold gift but before the surgery. Uh, my buddy Jeff, uh, he sold it to me at a great price. And it's a uh, it's, it's a really nice touring bike. And I, I used to have one before I lost my left leg. But I thought, you know what? I'm going to get back on that road, even as a double amputee. And so I bought the bike and it's sitting in my garage. <laughs> how, how is this process going? That's an incredible, an incredible goal to me. That, it scares me to think about riding a motorcycle, period, with both my legs. So, whew. <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing is, is that making sure the balance is there because you don't have, I don't have my lower muscles mm-hmm. below, below the calf area. And so that, right, that, that's the challenge. It's just, it's just a challenge, but it's doable. So where are you in this challenge? It's just sitting in the garage. 
<laughs> I'm, I'll be honest with you. I'm a little intimidated by it. That, that's my problem. I did take the class to get back riding again. All right. But it's just sitting in the garage. <laughs> You're also wise. You're a wise it's, man. It's, it's there. It's too cold. How about that? <laughs> All right. That, that seems perfectly fair. You also are, are planning to take on uh, an international adventure as well. You're planning to go to Sri Lanka. Tell me about that. So there is a program uh, through the Adventurous uh, group that does these amazing uh, auto rickshaw uh, rides, they everything else. So here, what the one I chose, you can go to India, Himalayas, or Sri Lanka. Sri Lanka is the the shortest route. So you and two other people will go. You take an uh, auto rickshaw and you drive across the country for a week. And by yourself, you have to fix the vehicle. You have to to do everything on your own. And I plan on being the first double amputee to do that. Wow. And so I've already got people who want to sponsor me and everything else. It's just it's just phenomenal the the outreach on that. All right. And that that is next almost exactly a year from now, October of twenty twenty three. Yes. What do you have a training schedule set out to get well, ready I mean, for that? I, I know how to drive. I mean, I mean I don't know what you mean by training schedule. <laughs> I mean, I know I know I need to lose some weight. I mean <laughs> Well, I was in India before. I worked in India back in 2000, 2001. And so I've experienced auto rickshaws. And they it's basically a lawnmower. You're sitting on top of a lawnmower. But you have seats and a steering wheel. And they're phenomenal vehicles. Um, but it's just one of those things. I saw it and I said, I have to do that. I have to prove to myself that I can do something like that. So it's on the books. Through all of this all of your experience with this i mean the 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 illness was such a a rare piece of bad luck i mean it was one in millions of a, of a chance that you would have picked up this rare flesh eating disease and you've been through so much what's the thing that you are most grateful for in all of that you would think that'd be a hard answer but it's not i wasn't living before this happened, I wasn't going out there and uh, risking things and saying, you know, I'm going to grab this by the horns. I do that now. Now it seems like it's limitless. If I want to go to Sri Lanka, I'm going to plan it and go. And I've got the backing of my family, of work, of everything. And it's just one of those things that it changes your perspective on what life means. Life doesn't mean sitting in your office and working 24 hours a day for somebody else. Life doesn't mean sitting back on that sofa watching TV all the time. Life means getting up, taking chances, and doing something that you actually enjoy. And so that when you do look in that reflection of that best friend that you have, you can say, I'm proud of you. I am so proud of you. Ricky Bartlett, thank you so much. Well, I appreciate your time, too. It's nice here, to be honest with you. I like it. Well, good. Come back again sometime, all right? That sounds good. <laughs> Sweet tea, though, okay? Sweet right, tea next, next time. time. Next thank time. You. We've got some sugar in the drawer out front. I'm sure we can, <laughs> we can make you something. <laughs> Ricky Bartlett is the morning host on KMRY in Cedar Rapids. Weekday mornings. He's also an actor, and we've been talking about all of that, his future plans, and also the fact that he has just come through his second amputation and is doing his best to live life to his fullest.
This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News. My guest now is Abina Sankofa Imhotep. She's known for some time that she would write a book, but she wasn't sure what form that book would take. Now she has published her first children's book. It is a joyful, inspiring picture book called Amari's Big Tree and the Mighty Gym Day. She's also executive director of Sankofa Literacy and Empowerment Group and Sankofa Literary Academy. She's a student at Drake University and a leader in many ways in Des Moines. Hello, Abena. Hi, Charity. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you so much for being here today. And all right, I said that you said <laughs> that you, you knew you would write a book for a long time. Tell me about that feeling. Why, why did you think that that would be something that you would do? Oh, destiny calls. Destiny absolutely calls. So I, I've been a writer for a really long time, um, starting with the Iowa Bystander newspaper many years ago. And um, I got good at it. You know, if you do anything long enough, you become really good at it. And so it was through uh, perfecting my column called Let Me Tell You over many, many years that I decided one day I would write a book. I just didn't know exactly who it would be for and what I'd write about. But I knew that um, my literary voice is... um, is dedicated to the experience of African-Americans and people in the African diaspora. So that's as much as I knew. All right. And where did the idea for Omari's Big Tree and the Mighty Jimbe come from? Well, I've had inspiration come from all sorts of places. So my children are adults now and they've begun their own families. And as soon as my first grandchild was born, uh, the idea for creating something that that he could enjoy and read came to me. But it was, um, so that was part of it. But then working with the young people in my literary academy, Sankofa Literary Academy, um, and working with children who are struggling to read, that really kind of lit a fire beneath my feet to, to create something that children could embrace and find themselves in. Well, why don't you introduce us to Amari? Um, and why don't you just read maybe the first few pages of the book so that we can get an idea for, for who Amari is and, and a little bit more about the book? I'd love to. Everywhere Omari went, he took along his drumsticks, though he didn't have a drum. But he had picked just the right sticks, sticks not particularly special to anyone except to Omari, who played air drums each morning and sidewalk drums every afternoon. And when BB mom and dad weren't looking, he played tabletop drums, too. After lunch, Omari air drummed right across the street to Sankofa Park. The coolest thing about this park was the big tree and its magnificent mahogany bark. Omari! Omari's best pals, Sugar and Choli, waved him over to play. Omari greeted them as he always did with, Hey, hey, what do you say? Are you ever going to get a real drum? Sugar teased. So Omari wished with all his heart that one day he'd have his very own drum and maybe even with a band, March. A lot of things happen in this book, and uh, we'll talk a little bit about some of them in a moment. But I think that anyone listening to that can tell that this is a a joyful story. Omari is a, a child with a, a lot of energy and wonder in the world. Was that 
a goal of yours to make sure that that you were sharing some of that joy of childhood with readers? Definitely. I think particularly for black boys, Omari is a black boy. Um, They tend to be um, matured before, you know, in the eyes of other people before time, prematurely matured. And so it was certainly a goal of mine to demonstrate the childlike behavior of a kid, a child who loves to play with his friends, who enjoys the park, who has habits and and feelings and all of the things that make childhood wonderful. He he experiences all of those. And so that was for sure a goal of mine to make that come across in a really powerful way. And this is not a story that is rooted in trauma, which I think is important to talk about because there has been a powerful push to make sure that there is better representation of people of color in children's literature. And a lot of the children's literature that has come out of that push is rooted in trauma. Yeah. You know, there are traumatic things that children experience, particularly black children. And while those conversations are incredibly important, I think it's important for equally important for us to celebrate the joys of black childhood. There are children who want to play, children who want to learn, children who want to get their fingers and toes dirty in the sand and in the soil. And so that's just as important to to share with readers as is the traumatic incidences that shape us into the people that we become. So demonstrating and and really illustrating how a child is is a child is is critical to me. And this story, while it's uh, rooted in a world that we recognize, there's also a little bit of magic in there. Oh, there has to be magic. If it's a good story, there's magic. (laughs) It's the kind of magic, though, that's not um, something that is um, unfathomable. For some reason, I can't say that word. but (laughs) You got it. (laughs) Yeah. So the hummingbird, there is on most many pages of the story where there's a hummingbird that follows Omari everywhere he goes. And so that hummingbird is a representation of surprises, of of unspoken joys, of a good future and bright things that are going to happen to him. And so there's the hint of magic in the book with that. But then as the story progresses, there is clearly um, the illustration of something special and something magical happening for and to Omari. Absolutely. And I, I can just imagine when you get to read this out loud to a group of children that there's a big payoff when, when that happens. Lots of gasps and smiles and maybe some giggles, too. All right. We're, we're going to take a short break. Uh, we will continue our conversation in just a moment. I'm talking to Abina Sankofa Imhotep. She has just published her first children's book. It's called Omari's Big Tree and the Mighty Jimbe. We'll talk more in a moment. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News. Support for IPR comes from The Healing Room at Upstream Functional Medicine, offering medical spa services that support the body's natural ability to detoxify from environmental challenges. Learn more about The Healing Room at upstreamfm.com. 
It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. My guest is Abina Sankofa Imhotep. She is the author of a new children's book. It's called Omari's Big Tree and the Mighty Jimbe. And she is also executive director of Sankofa Literary and Empowerment Group and Sankofa Literary Academy. She's also a student at Drake University and a leader in many ways in Des Moines for many years, also a former journalist as well. And uh, Abina, before the break, we were talking about this book and how it's rooted in joy with a little bit of magic and Amari is a a joyful character as he uh, pursues in his passion for drumming on things in a way that only a child I really think can because he carries his drumsticks everywhere he goes. Um, That word that that I've said now many times, it's your middle name. It is uh, in the name of your literary and empowerment group, your literary academy, Sankofa. It's also the name of a park in this book. What does Sankofa mean? Sankofa. Wow. Every time I hear it, every time I say it, it kind of gives me goosebumps. So it's a word from the Ghanaian tradition in the Akan tribe. And it means to return and retrieve, to go back and reach for the lessons of the past so that they can help us uh, do great things going forward. Essentially, it is it means that it's not taboo to fetch what is at risk of being left behind. So it's my middle name. It's also um, incorporated into all of my business because I do use the literature and scholarship of black authors to support all of the work that I do. That's my way of going back and getting those lessons. And then for Omari, it's the name of the park that he goes to every day. So essentially he is returning to his roots. He's returning to his culture every day as a child when he goes to the park. It's symbolic. It's also a book that could be taking place anywhere, Uh, I feel like the fact that Sankofa Park is this beautiful place where Amari and his friends can connect with nature. There's a park like that in many, many, many communities all over the world. Was that also uh, intentional, that it would feel universal? Very much so. I, I really believe that, you know, at the core of it, Kids love to be outdoors. I can't think of a time in my childhood when I'd rather have been outside than inside. (laughs) So for Omari, it was important for me to position him in nature. Um, I think we do have a responsibility to the earth and caring for the earth. Um, We're in the middle of a, a climate crisis. And so positioning Omari in the great outdoors is a way of saying that Children have a part to play in caring for the earth. It's um, also a way of saying that we can decolonize the great outdoors. Um, You know, it's very, very important that um, he is at this park throughout the story. Um, And when people look at the illustrations, um, the Sankofa Park sign is a direct replica of Des Moines Parks and Recreation signs. So it's kind of an ode to the city as well. This story is not rooted in trauma, but this story grew out of a time that was incredibly traumatic in many ways. 
uh, obviously the COVID-19 pandemic, but then the murder of George Floyd, the Black Lives Matter movement that that really grew or was rejuvenated and, and gained so much power in the months after that. And then the derecho is also a part of it's a part of this story in a small way, but it was also a part of your inspiration. Tell me how this book grew out of so much turmoil. Well, again, you know, speaking to the climate crisis and knowing that we have more frequent and more intense storms that are climate induced. And so a way of really acknowledging that was to, um, put Omari in a situation where his family was faced with having to respond within their family and within their community to the derecho. So 2020, August, I was working from home and I had my windows wide open, beautiful summer day. And then suddenly the skies darkened and I love to play outside in the rain, (laughs) even as an adult. So it started to rain and I said, yeah, I'm taking a break from work. And I went outside and I stood there in the outdoors. It was warm, but then the skies got even darker and that rain really began to pound down in my yard. And then I noticed branches falling and garbage cans literally rolling down the street. And I realized, oh, it's not your average rainstorm or your rainfall. So um, taking that experience and thinking about the fact that being an Iowan, I knew exactly what to do. We are drilled and, and, and given all of these lessons in school. But for little kids, it's not so simple. It can be really scary. And so I wanted to think about what would a child's response to the derecho be? And so that's part of the reason why Omari is situated in that particular um, position. And then also, you know, in Iowa, we were devastated by that storm. You know, the derecho destroyed, it, it leveled 670,000 trees in Cedar Rapids alone. And that's 65% of their tree canopy. The hardest hit areas were in marginalized communities, communities that are still recovering and replanting now, two years later. And so this is a way of saying, again, We have a responsibility to the earth and to each other, to our communities, our neighbors, our friends. I've mentioned a couple of times your literary and empowerment group and your literary academy. You... It's kind of hard to introduce you because you are involved in so many different things as um, you're on the boards of the American Red Cross and the African-American Museum of Iowa, the Union of Black America, Des Moines, Selma. You, you've done so many things um, in your community. But I, I would love to hear a little bit about the work you do to promote literacy in Des Moines. It's really interesting to me to hear you say that charity because I don't feel like I do so many different things. I really only do one thing and that is use the literature and scholarship of black authors to kind of lift up all of the, the, the things that matter to me the most. It just comes out in many different ways, I guess. But with the, um, the literary Academy, which is absolutely the favorite part of what I do. So we work with um, struggling readers who are students in the Des Moines Public School District from third grade to eighth grade. And we essentially have a literacy incubator that supports their goals. Right now, the district 
has set some literacy goals in particular for black boys um, to raise the levels of literacy and get these kids reading on track um, from 35 percent to 72 percent by June of 2023. And I decided that there is some hand that I could play in that. We can use the literature and scholarship of black authors to not only provide children with a structure after school in which they can find themselves and wrap themselves around stories and experience stories and write stories, but we can make reading fun. They learn how to do things through reading, and then reading is kind of an after effect of all of the fun and community that we create. And, and of course, creates the opportunity for more learning and fun in the yeah. future as well. That that uh, reminds me of a lot of the things that the creators of the 1619 Freedom School in Waterloo have said about their literacy and empowerment program. I mean, it sounds like a, a similar approach. Do you feel that? I feel there are similarities. And the, the most important thing for me is that the work we do is immediate and local. So what works for Waterloo is fantastic. What works for Des Moines is different and fantastic. So I found that rather than doing a cookie cutter program, it's best to look at the needs of the children in the area, in their circumstance, and meet them where they are, rather than providing a a cookie cutter solution, Mm -hmm. which is so often what we do. So, yes, I, I totally admire the work of the 1619 Freedom School. And as a matter of fact, I just autographed a book for their library. I was nice. so pleased for that over the over last week um, at an event that we did. Um, but the work here in Des Moines that I'm doing with our students is slightly different, um, but not far from what, what they're doing in Waterloo. It's just really important to me to make sure that the work is immediate and local and speaks to the needs of the students right where we are. You, in addition to all the many things that you're doing, you're also pursuing your education right now. Tell me what your goals are. Wow, my goals are lofty. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm a student at Drake University. I am so honored to be a part of the inaugural class of John D. Bright College, which is a two-year program named after Johnny D. Bright, who was a collegiate football player in line for the Heisman Trophy. And then his hopes in that um, um, space were dashed due to a violent attack on the field. And he went on to become an educator in Canada, schools named after him and, and everything in Canada. And so Drake University decided to name their newest college after this fantastic person, Um, This black man who overcame so much adversity and who was a great person on and off the field. We as an inaugural class, we were able to meet his granddaughter and get acquainted with the legacy of John D. Bright. So in the school there, I study the integrated arts, sciences and humanities on track for um, a degree in international relations after that. And then we'll see. Wow. (laughs) <laughs> well, that that sounds like an incredible challenge. And also to integrate that into this very full and rich life that you are already leading. As you said, you only do one thing, but um, I, I think that, that that one thing takes you in many different directions. How How do you balance it? I balance it very well <laughs> because I see it as just one thing. I'm operating... A life, in a life of purpose 
And I think we all owe it to ourselves to figure out why we were born. Why are we here? What is the work meant for us to do? And over time, I figured that out, stumbled a couple times, fell down. But I got back up and I kept trying. And, you know, I'm a middle aged woman in a college classroom as a student, not a professor. So that's colorful. That's really interesting. But I feel like there's no wrong time to do what you were born to do. And so I just I lead a life of a life of purpose. And I feel like I'm on the right track if I can help children realize that they are intelligent because they are. Every child is born a genius. And it's up to us as their parents, grandparents, teachers, you know, community members that are adjacent to these children to bring that out of them and support them. So I'm on track to do what I was born to do. You are also doing a great deal to educate adults as well. And uh, you, about a year ago, gave a talk at TEDx Des Moines. Um, the talk is entitled Iowa Nice Interrupted, and you can watch this on YouTube. It's easy to find, and I suggest everybody spend some time. But uh, you are talking about how in Iowa the idea that we have of ourselves, that Iowans are nice and kind, <laughs> is yeah. used. we use it to mask and ignore some of the important truths about our state. And I don't have 20 minutes for you to give the whole <laughs> your whole thesis there. But in just a moment, I mean, what do you want Iowans to think about uh, that goes beyond this Iowa nice idea? Well, I think that there can be truth to Iowa nice if we would do the work and create the conditions for it. My talk, Iowa Nice Interrupted, is really about pressing pause on prevailing narratives about what stitches us together, you know, it's easy to think that we're all nice and we're all kind and benevolent to everyone. But the fact is that the data shows otherwise. So if we can press pause on these prevailing narratives and make space for other perspectives, then we'll be able to have a more comprehensive view of what Iowa really is like for all rather than just a few. There are these political narratives that that have been advancing in powerful ways, the mythology of Iowa nice, but also in Iowa as a homogeneous state. When you look at political ads in the midterm elections, there were a lot of ads that erased all diversity from Iowa, where you only saw white people in the ads. Do you feel like this mythology is You've lived in Iowa all your life. I mean, do you feel like this mythology is gaining power? I wouldn't say that it's gaining power as much as it's exerting the power it's always had. You know, there are very many initiatives in our city and in, in the city of Des Moines and in, in the entire state that work towards celebrating diversity and attracting people with diverse talents and skills to the state. But when it comes to um, politics and other things, I didn't think we were going to be talking about politics, but those narratives get shut down. And that's a, a major characteristic of dominant culture. It's, it begs the question of whose, whose narrative prevails and then who is silenced, who benefits and who is harmed. 
And once we can answer those questions, then we're able to say, okay, these are the things that we must do in order to change that and make it better. Because I can say, our, our state is working really hard. And by our state, I mean the people, the residents, the people of Iowa seem to be working really hard at building community. But we need that to come across and be displayed by the people that represent us. So we must be representative. And when, it, when I think representation, I don't think of it in the traditional sense. I think literally representing the values that are important to all of us. And we do all have things in common. We want our, uni- our our communities to be safe. We want our kids to grow up healthy and happy and have the opportunity to learn. We all want to be able to take care of our families. Those are values we have in common. And if we can choose leadership that can represent those values, we'll be in good shape. Abena Sankofa Imotep, thank you so much for talking with me. And thank you for your beautiful book as well. Thank you. Please enjoy it. Abena Sankofa Imhotep, her first children's book has just been published. It's called Omari's Big Tree and the Mighty Jimbe. She is also executive director of Sankofa Literary and Empowerment Group and Sankofa Literary Academy. And she's a student at Drake University and a leader in so many ways in central Iowa. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe.